Hello, and welcome back to our next episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. Today, we are speaking with my colleague, Brian Jenkins, a principal on our team that has led our research department, now known as our portfolio management group, for many years. Brian and his team are the masterminds behind the data that you see presented in our market overview. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I think today I want to dive into all things market overview, but let's start high level. Can you describe to us uh, your role at the firm and how the team and the capabilities that you guys work on are leveraged by the entire organization? Sure. Uh, So I've been with Hamilton Lane for a little bit over a decade now, and I co-head our portfolio management group. So that encompasses all aspects of portfolio construction. So think about strategic asset allocation, about how we implement portfolios, as well as working with our other investment teams to place managers and deals into client portfolios. The other piece of my role is managing the firm's data assets and helping figure out ways that we can use that data to build tools, to build analytics that can help inform a lot of our investment decision-making. Can you talk a little bit more about those data assets? Um, What does it look like? How has it evolved? Why do we think it's unique? Yeah, well, maybe we could start with the state of data in private markets, which uh, private markets data sucks, right? It's (laughs) it's terrible. I've worked in the asset class for a while, and I think there are a lot of interesting facets to it, but data is the one place where, where it's really fallen short. I mean, this is an asset class where I think it was four or five years ago where one of the leading industry data sets had to be thrown out because there were major issues with how data was collected and displayed. Uh, and so at Hamilton Lane, that, that data challenge is something that we recognized 30 years ago when, when the firm first started and it's been in our, our DNA. And because we've grown our platform and, and where we sit in the industry and all of the different services we provide and GPs and LPs that we interact with, we've put together what we think is a really comprehensive and unique data set. One of the largest in the industry, but what's really unique about it is the depth of the data that that we have, right? It's not just some of the headline performance figures, it's the underlying company data, it's looking at some of the operational performance, uh, things like that, that we just, we, we couldn't replicate in any commercial data source. And so what do you think that means in terms of our ability to now create new models or come up with new analyses that maybe haven't been done before. It, it's huge, right? Because you have that detail, it just enables another level of analysis. It allows you to uh, understand a little bit more about how fund performance evolves, what are the factors that drive success, what are the factors that drive risk, and all of that informs how you allocate portfolios. It's really interesting, especially in today's market when so many of, of the headlines are uh, you know, we're, we're reacting to them real time. Well, yeah, well, so much of the industry has been driven by anecdote for, yeah. for so long, and uh, we think we got to operate a little bit differently if you want to make smarter portfolio decisions. That's great. So as I mentioned, today we're, we're really here to dissect the annual market overview, which is the statement piece from Hamilton Lean every year, has been for a long time. Mario talked about it in our first show where he said it had sort of started as a piece for our co-investment funds was 10 pages. <laughs> yeah, if you, I've seen that earlier version from around 2006 or 2007, and yeah, I think it was about 10 or 12 pages of, of frequent data. Yeah, I remember working on it, which is a challenge because no one wants me working on the data, but I'm so glad we have you now to be working on this. Um, but if we look behind the curtain, which is kind of a, a you know an omen to this year's theme, um, 
Can you give the audience a little bit more background on what are sort of the steps involved in creating this, the product that is the market overview today? Yeah, well, it it usually starts the minute that the previous market overview ends, right? So, so once we wrap up the, well, we just wrapped up the 2023 market overview, we're already starting to think about what are some of the things, what are some of the research we want to do for the 2024 market overview? And, the, and that sort of evolves uh, over the course of the next six or nine months, especially as it's a very interesting time in financial markets. And so we have to be a little bit reactive to that. And so uh, there's a there are a lot of people around the firm that contribute to this in different ways, whether it's contributing ideas, whether it's contributing some of the analysis, helping us with data collection, uh, our creative team helping us with all sorts of interesting and wonderful visualizations. And so it starts at the idea phase where we're, we talk to a lot of uh, LPs and GPs and, and understanding what is on their minds and what are the challenges that they need to address over the next 12 months. And that drives a lot of the idea generation for the market overview. And who's responsible for the theme? <laughs> Uh, that, that is, uh, it's another brainstorming process. I, I'll have to give Mario a little bit of credit here and that I think he, he drives some of that, uh, especially some of the more obscure literary references that, that we've made in prior market overviews. I think the, uh, he's gone a little more mainstream in the last couple. <laughs> and, and so this year's theme was the Wizard of Oz. Yep. Follow the Yellow Brick Road. What was the importance of this year's theme? Well, if you think about where the Wizard of Oz starts out, it is Dorothy being transplanted, transplanted to a very unfamiliar place, a very different place than where she spent the last few years of, of her life. And that's a little bit of what 2022 felt like, is that we were in this weird place to start. We didn't really know how to navigate it. And so what is the path that you need to take in order to get back to Kansas? That's fascinating. I, I think it really hit well with others. Last year's was the Midas and the Golden Touch, which was interesting. And it was a time where everything looked great up to the right. And then certainly this year, um, there's been a lot of a lot of noise. Well, it was it was prescient in some ways, because if you think about how that story ends, it's that that the touch of turning everything to gold becomes a curse. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. That's great. So if I turn to some of the big topics that were in the, the market overview this year, some of the ones that obviously come to mind, inflation, interest rates, valuations. Um, how did you sort of think about these key themes? How do you think about selecting key themes? Because they all seem, you know, at the, at the high level, kind of dreary and daunting, right? <laughs> well, it, it was a, a dreary year, especially here in Philadelphia, where you think you have the Eagles, the Phillies, and the Union all losing in heartbreaking fashion. And so that certainly informed our, our dreariness at the outset. But no, I think so some of those things, we have to think about them in a private markets context, right? There are millions of people out there commenting on where inflation is going, what's driving interest rates, what the Fed's going to do, what the ECB is going to do. And what we need to think about is what does that mean for private markets portfolios? How does that impact the strategies that, that we're looking at? And so no, right, there, there, there's a few ways that that, that impacts things. The first is in the general context of you know input costs, labor costs are, are going up, consumers are, are kind of growing weary of, of rate hikes, and that has an impact on a lot of the businesses that are owned by private markets firms. Uh, you think about things like debt servicing costs becoming a bit more expensive, right, for firms that are highly highly levered. That that is potentially something we need to think about. Uh, and then certainly there is the the impact that it has on valuations. Right? If 
you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis and you have higher base interest rates, that means your discount rate's going up. That's decreasing the value of your future cash flows and valuations have to come down. Interesting. So in terms of inflation, I think we had sort of a, a firm view back um, when this all started in, in the fall of 21 <laughs> that it was going to, you know, kind of hit us, peak at a certain point and come down. How did that sort of inform how you wanted to tell the story to the audience this last year? And how do we think about inflation today, you know, three months sort of post the market overview? Well, I think if you read our, our market overview, we were clear that we thought inflation had peaked closer to the end of 2022. And I think some of the data that we've seen since then, uh, at least here in the U.S., seems to confirm uh, that, that that's where, ha- where we're headed. And so for us, that's confirmation of a lot of the theses that we had in the market overview. Yeah. And I just think in terms of how it related to recession probabilities and certain of the underlying analysis that we did, um, it, it certainly was interesting to see you guys sort of unpack that in, in a lot of different ways. Yeah, well, well this is the, the first year where we felt that there was a fairly high probability of, of recessions. I think we're still trying to coach Mario on how to uh, position probabilities and understand what they are. But if, if you kind of parse what he's saying in there, it's we thought it was pretty certain that there will be a recession in the U.S. and also in Europe. And we still think that that's, that is likely to be the case. And that's the first time that we've said that in probably over a decade now. Yeah. We've been generally pretty bullish. Interesting. Yeah, on the inflation front, I mean, we're starting to hear from GPs about capping price increases and, in fact, bringing them down just because the consumers can't really handle it anymore. And I think net benefit, that's a good thing, right? Um, and, and that they've been able to pass these price increases on, and now they're trying to find ways to grow. And so we kind of expected, right, some of that retrenchment back. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right, especially in, in consumer-driven businesses. And, and if you look at some of the excess savings that consumers had for a while, especially as they were getting wage increases, which which tend to be slowing down, that the tolerance for that is just going to be lower going forward. Right. And then our other fa- uh, favorite I word, interest rates, <laughs> such a widely discussed topic. What What's so interesting about it from a digesting the data perspective is that Interest rates have such an impact, um, you know, on on both equity portfolios, but also credit and real assets in such different ways. So, how did you guys think about attacking that in terms of breaking apart the data and what you wanted to show this year? Well, it's exactly uh, like you alluded to. You have to break it out, break out its impact on different strategies because rate hikes have a different impact depending on the type of of security or asset that you're owning. Like for private equity, it's Higher interest rates are generally sort of a a slightly bearish signal uh, for private equity, given the lending costs and the higher rates of leverage and the impact that it can have on valuations. It's a much different story in in private credit markets, where most of the securities that you're seeing there are floating rate and get some benefit from, from rising interest rates. So if you want to make a bet on forward interest rates that they'll stay a bit elevated, at least for the next 12 to 18 months, private credit is a, a really interesting place to put your money. Yep. Yep. I agree. Um, and it, and just in terms of, um, you know, sort of as we look at companies today within private equity portfolios, at least on the equity side, you know, GPs being able to, again, make sure that they're making those payments. We haven't sort of seen any wall hit yet, but are these things that we're paying attention to? No, nothing yet. Uh, the maturity wall is something that 
I feel like it comes out every four or five years is that everyone worries about the ability to refinance some of the debt or, or debt servicing costs. I think it's something that is unlikely to be a major problem, right? The the forward outlook, if you look three or four years out, is that interest rates will, will come back down to something a bit more manageable. Yeah. yeah. And then in terms of valuations, I, I, I think it's fascinating what we do here with valuations. So maybe we could start with that just in terms of how we at HL think about, uh, you know, the data, how we watch the data, and how we sort of predict where we think valuations are going to end up each quarter. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So valuations, very topical, especially when you see large swings in public markets, right? Anytime you see a large swing in public markets and the swing isn't quite as big in private markets, everyone's wondering, well, hey, what the hell? Why, why haven't these adjusted as much as what we've seen in other asset classes? And it, I think there are a number of fundamental reasons for why that shouldn't necessarily be the case that aren't just uh, they're, everyone's BSing us and just making up numbers and have their heads buried in the sand. So if you think about what trades on listed exchanges, it is minority shares, it is instantaneous liquidity, and the buyer universe is quite large and, and diverse, right? And is driven by different kinds of sentiments. If you think about how private companies are valued, it is a control stake, it is a single buyer, right? It is a negotiated process where the longer term outlook is really what's driving the valuation. And so to me, those, those things don't necessarily have to have the same type of price or at least the same type of volatility, uh, I would say. The, the sentiment that a buyer that knows a business very well or is getting note over six months right, isn't going to change as much as some of the day-to-day swings that you would see in, in traded equities. From a uh, metric standpoint, right, the operational performance of some of the private companies has just been better than what we've seen in traded assets. Right? And we showed some of that data in our market overview, right? The uh, Whether it's revenue growth or EBITDA growth has been a bit stronger, which has helped offset some of the multiple compression that we've seen. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like this is where we, you know, we started to lean more positive in the market overview, right? I don't know that there was a perfect inflection point, but it was kind of Right, the data well, was telling it's, us it's, okay. it's it's maybe more neutral, more neutral right? In that we sure. think these valuations are fair. That's not saying that they're definitely going to up go up, but we're also not saying they're definitely going to go down, or that there's another shoe that's that's going to drop in the next three months, which seems to be the assumption that a lot of folks watching the asset class have. Yeah, and you guys had to pick apart the the venture side, which was an interesting analysis this year, right? It's interesting, and there's a perception that the venture market has not moved nearly as much. We're, we're just getting Q4 data in, and some of the preliminary data suggests that the venture market was down about 20% uh, last year. Again, not to say that that couldn't come down a bit more, especially with what we're seeing in terms of uh, valuation for late-stage funding rounds early this year, but there has been some movement in venture capital valuations, even more so than what we've seen in buyout. Yeah. I don't think the shoe has dropped there yet, or the other shoe, I guess I should say, has dropped yet. So We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Interesting. There's certainly a lot of funds out there with a lot of capital to spend still. That's right. That's right. And maybe more willing to sort of go back to that time period where it's okay to give up a few companies, right? And and sort of make sure you're leaning into your winners and, and reserving capital more for your winners. I, I think that's right. And there's some evidence that GPs have supported their winners during times of financial stress. If you look at some of the data from the financial crisis, GPs were 
able to deploy capital both offensively in terms of calling new equity capital to fund acquisitions, but also defensively, right? They have better capital markets connections, and they can also call capital to help cure capital structure issues, which are mechanisms that aren't really available to traded companies. So I kind of think about the market overview in sort of maybe two sections, and maybe you think about it differently, but sort of the macro side and then the private equity trend side. And we do a lot of the consistent year over year, you know, fundraising and contributions and distributions. Why do we? Why do you think we do that every year? Like, what do, what are those consistent analyses tell us, and, and what do they lend towards our decision making? It's a little bit of level setting, right? You need to know what the backdrop is before you go deeper into some of the key themes or what might be. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit more in-depth analysis, right? It, it's important to know where the dollars are being raised and, and who's raising them, because that tells you something about where they might be deployed over the next two or three years. It's important to know who's spending those dollars today, right? How fast are they being spent? And also who's, who's selling? Where's the liquidity coming from, right? Those are all sort of interesting aspects that help set the backdrop for some of the more in-depth themes that we explore. And it's also helpful to keep it more on a relative basis, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can kind of look at long-term trends, but then I'll just say, also say, like, here's where it should be or has been, right? right? Part, part of what we need right. to do is provide some sort of historical context so that when we say venture capital funds were spending money at se- spending their unfunded capital at 70% rate, like, what does that mean relative history? Is that fast? Is that slow? It's pretty fast, but <laughs> that's a big signal, right? That was a big signal for yeah. us, and we certainly have enough charts that we put in there. And maybe they don't tell us the story, but they're still important to kind of put in there, right? We always talk about that that wall of maturity or that nav growth chart, which is important. But yeah, well, that, that's the other thing is it it helps to reinforce some of the challenges to preconceived notions, mm, yeah. right? That there's been this notion that uh, there's this wall of unfunded capital that needs to be spent right away. And I've heard that every year since I've started this asset class. And so having that chart every year, while we say it is the least important chart, serves a bit of importance in reminding people that it doesn't actually matter. Right. We also put, and this could be my own opinion, but the, like the purchase price multiple charts and the debt ratio charts, I mean, they're important, but they haven't really changed much over the last, I don't know, decade. Um, and I think what we've said is we've kind of gotten to a new normal. I think what's important on those slides is looking at it relative to the public markets and where. Yeah. But it's important to keep tabs on it so you know when it does change, right? If there is a major shift in how assets are being priced or the leverage available as a result of the interest rate environment, that those are both important factors for go-forward returns. So when we think today about just sort of some of the, the, the challenges that LPs have in terms of, you know, they've committed a lot of money over the last few years, maybe even some more in venture than in others, you've got allocation. Um, I think knowing the backdrop of what the market overview told us this year, wh- where are we advising clients? Um, what you know, What is our expectation, I guess, in terms of our, our portfolio recommendations for some of those clients? Let's, let's start with the allocation bit first, because that is probably the most pressing challenge for LPs that have been committing over the past decade. So we showed some of this in the market overview. Most LPs, when they're committing to a private equity fund, expect to get about 80 cents of net asset value for every dollar invested. What we've seen over the last few years is they've been getting more like $1.20. And so if you've invested over the past decade, say you invested $100 per year, you'd probably expect about $500 worth of of NAV. Your actual NAV is more like $1,000, right? So 2x your allocation. And so what are your options? Uh, 
option one is just to stop committing. And that was the option that a lot of LPs took during the financial crisis in, in 2008. And that didn't work out too well for a lot of LPs because some of those vintage years right after the crisis were some of the best vintage years, and it took years to restart their program. Your second option is to sell some things. And that's something that some LPs have elected to do. We've seen that activity on the secondary market. We've seen more LP portfolios come to market. And I think that is a legitimate option for some LPs that are looking to rebalance, especially if they're pruning some of their relationships and and looking to exit some of their non-core relationships. The third option, which I think is probably the best option, is to find a way to keep some sort of relatively consistent commitment pace. Maybe it's a bit less than what you've seen over the past couple of years, especially in the past couple of years. If you were just maintaining your relationships with how fast everyone was coming back to market, you probably had a higher pace. Uh, but we tend to think that over the long run, having some manner of consistent commitment pacing is is going to drive the best returns for LPs. Yeah. And we, we work a lot with your team and with our tools that we have to sort of look at cash flows in different market environments and why continuing to commit at that pace is important, even if it's at the lower end. Of course. And we talked a little bit about the numerator effect. There is a denominator effect to this as well, that when you had public markets drop 15 to 20%, that that exacerbates it. And I don't expect that that'll be that will continue for a very extended period of time, at least. Well, and then the second part of my question, which I asked a lot in there, was just sort of where are we kind of leaning in these days? What what were some of the key themes in our market overview in terms of where we're leaning into in today's environment? Yeah, so I think there's a there's a few places that are really interesting in this kind of market. So first, infrastructure, particularly around energy transition related assets, and I know there are some folks that think this is really an ESG driven th- thesis. It, it's not really ESG driven. There's certainly a component of it and folks that are interested in that should consider this, but it's it's a little bit more government or national policy driven, which I'm not always a fan of those, but I think there, there's some real momentum behind this. There, it's one of the few places that you're likely to see some sort of compromise because everyone's constituents need to, to drive on roads and you know, they want a lower energy bill and they need access to internet to do their jobs and then post about their jobs on TikTok and, and all of those things. And so it is something that I think you will continue to see governments drive spending towards. And last year also taught us a lot about the importance for energy security and energy independence. And so you see things like the Inflation Reduction Act here in the U.S. that might drive over $4 trillion worth of investment into uh, renewable energy and securing our energy supply. The, the EU wants to have 70% of their energy uh generated by renewables, right, as a way to move away from oil dependence from from Russia and some of the other countries in, in Eastern Europe. And, and in Asia, you have the emergence of, you have some of these emerging cities that have global ambitions that need to build all of the basic things like better transport, uh, better tech and telecom systems, and, and even waste management to become the global megacities that, that they have ambitions of being. So I think infrastructure, really interesting. Uh, secondaries is another place where we're spending a lot of time. We just talked about some of the overallocation issue that's driving deal flow on the LP portfolio side. I also think this is a place where there's a lot of innovation or probably more solutions development occurring, right? This is a place where we find creative solutions to uh, create liquidity for LPs uh, or GPs that might not otherwise be able to get it. And there's an accept, growing acceptance that the secondary market is a tool for portfolio management that you can use 
rather than kind of a market of last resort where there's only distressed sellers and buyers looking to take advantage of those distressed sellers. And then the third place, which we touched on a little bit earlier, is is the credit markets. So there, there's an interest rate element to this. Certainly, if you, you know now in senior credit, if you're looking at getting SOFR plus 600 for for first lien loans, a couple of years ago that was seven percent, eight percent. Now that's 10, 11 percent, and you're not taking much more risk, and so you're getting a paid uh, a premium for for the same level of risk, which is really attractive. I also think there's a supply-demand story here as well. You look at private credit fundraising, it's about $200 billion over the last, per year for the last few years, which, which is healthy. But when you consider that buyout dry powder is closer to about a trillion dollars, right, there, there's a gap in between what needs to be funded and the funding available, especially think about what's happened over the last month or so with some of the regional banks that funded a lot of these LBOs that might not have that kind of funding and private credit can step in and provide some of that funding. That's great. Our next episode, we're going to focus um, more in depth on the on the credit uh, landscape as we see it today. Um, so I guess, you know, all that being said, are you bullish on private equity? I mean, would you would you agree that we should, we as LPs should continue to lean in here? Uh, well, um, bullish is a relative term, right? I, I think I am bullish on private equity relative to the other assets that are available to investors over the long term, right? It, I don't think about things on just a one-year or 18-month basis. It's over a five, seven, 10-year period what, what looks the most attractive. And so I think in my mind, I, I don't see any reason why private equity or private credit or private infrastructure uh, won't continue to produce uh, an appropriate level of risk-adjusted performance that you know is better than what you can get in traded assets. So as we finish this up, um, I, I haven't done this before, but I want to do a few rapid-fire questions at you, if that's okay. Sure. Um, the first would be, what has been your favorite analysis that your team has produced over the years Ooh, for the market overview? Good question. Uh, I think I'd have to say... And we've done this a couple of times where we refer to them internally as our, our fund picking robots. But but really what we did is said, hey, let, let's set some really simple rules for picking funds. So for example, I will only pick funds where when they come to market, the manager is top quartile or top quartile and had distributed some minimum level from their previous two funds or had only comes back to market every three years, so they're not coming back to market very, very quickly. So it, it was a really interesting way to think about fund picking, and, and you can program them into an algorithm and ha- have your robot uh, stick to those rules and see what the performance looks like and, and see what the, the volatility looks like. To me, the more interesting part was that we also had a few uh, uh, create more creative uh, solutions where we picked funds based on the name of the manager. So uh, Rocks and Mountains, or I think we had Flora and Fauna, or, or firms that were named after their partners to see which firm names dominated. And who did? <laughs> uh, I think it was Rocks and Mountains. Rocks and which, Mountains? Yeah, we, I, I remember after the first time we did it, we used to have some general partners, new relationships come in and present to our IC when we were making a recommendation. And one of the GPs came in and said, you know, we had a whole presentation prepared but they just showed us a slide from our market overview that said, well, Rocks and Mountains clearly dominates <laughs> our firm, named after Rocks and Mountains. 
you should pick us. I think you need to update that analysis. <laughs> we'll see. Well, so some are, some people wonder what, it, what does that mean for Hamilton Lane that you guys must be named for your partners, but we're, that's actually not how the firm was named. No, not at all. Very interesting. And the one that did the the least well were the ones named after the partners, yes. I believe. So yes. if you name your firm after yourself, uh, <laughs> not always top quartile. Um, second question: Is there anything that you think we've called? in the market overviews that has been pretty spot on? Well, everything. Everything. In the, in the market overview, right? Um, no, I think one of the more interesting analysis that we looked at, I think it was two or three years ago, was comparing the venture capital market to the dot-com era, or a couple of years before the dot-com era, and saying, hey, is the environment now look a little bit like that. And what does that mean for performance over the next two or three years? And so if think about what's happened in that market over two or three years. Yeah. You've had some exuberance. You've had uh, pricing go up quite a bit very, very rapidly. You've had a number of, of, of unicorns that have been developed. And now you're starting to see some trouble as uh, interest rate policy is reversed and we approach a potential recession. My favorite was, um, I think it was 2016 was the year we called a negative recession. And I remember you guys put the slide up um, and like the whole audience laughed. <laughs> like who predicts a negative recession? Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, so like I said uh, earlier, we're still trying to teach Mario the basics of probability. <laughs> um, is there something within the data today that maybe we don't have it yet, but is exciting for you to watch for the future? Uh, yeah, I, I always like to think about you know, what is going to impact portfolios for the next five or 10 years? What, what are LPs interested in and allocating to today that we just don't have a fully developed data set on because it, it's so early? So the big themes that I see is LPs allocating more capital to co-investments and to secondaries, right? And those are data sets that I would say are, are still developing and we're f figuring out better ways to track some of that. And to analyze it so we can articulate the impact that that might have on LP portfolios and help think about, hey, how do we size those allocations and how should LPs approach those allocations? The the impact of those today just isn't well understood. Mm, that's interesting. I think maybe too on the um, the ESG front and the DE&I front, we're, we're using new technologies to get smarter and look at, you know, risk and and return and obviously just sort of what who are the groups we want to lean into and why. Yeah, I, I'd put that in a similar category where it, it's data that we're doing a much, much better job collecting today, but it takes three, four, five years of that collection before you can really tell the story. Something meaningful. Okay, last question. This is a doozy. What is Hawaiian Shirt Day? <laughs> Uh, well, uh, first, it's it's Hawaiian Shirt Thursday, not Hawaiian Shirt Day. There's a very specific day of the week that, that we wear Hawaiian shirts. And so it, it started out as a bit of a joke. I, I have a, a small, a modest Hawaiian shirt collection. And as we had come back to the office and we were reopening our new building, you know, most folks are in the office Tuesdays through Thursdays. So it used to be in the old world, you, did ca you could do casual Fridays and dress down a little bit. If you want to dress down a little bit, your last day in the office is now Thursday. So... Hence the Hawaiian shirt Thursdays because I had acquired a number of these over the course of the pandemic and uh, that was most of my wardrobe. So I wanted to find a way to wear those. So most of the team does it now. That's interesting. It, it, it's like, you know, our data guys have a, have a sense of humor. I like it. <laughs> I, there's client meeting on a Thursday. I've worn them to client meetings. That's great. <laughs> well, great. Thank you, Brian. This has been very insightful um, and certainly a great peek behind the market overview curtain. 
but as you mentioned, we know it takes a lot of work behind the scenes to craft you know, a thoughtful, relevant document. And so we're grateful to you and to your team and to everyone that contributes. And um, you know, for those who want more information, I believe access to the market overview is directly on our website. Yeah, I think that's right. Thanks for having me, Katie. Thank you for listening in to another episode of Private Markets Made Human. If you want more information or to access the 2023 market overview, we welcome you to visit our website. Also, please stay tuned for our next episode with a new guest host, where we will dive deep into the current credit environment.